Well, that is the sound of the business buzz, and I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. It's nice to see you today. It's another beautiful Chico day. I'm happy to have a little time to spend with you. I hope today will be very informative and educational. How's that sound? Well, I always like to start off with some local local news, and then I kind of expand outward. There was a uh, Chico job fair, and I believe that was yesterday, and I'm just kind of getting this from the Enterprise record, but I thought I'd share it with you. So uh, there was 100 people waiting in line, hoping to hunt down a job. So anyway, that just sort of brings me to the subject of employment. There are some people who act like we're at an all-time low with only 3.8% employment in the United States economy. I'm sorry, 3.8% unemployment. And I'm not sure that's accurate, but I do believe that there has been a bit of an upturn lately, and I believe it could have something to do with the tax cuts that I've talked about. I do a lot of work with income tax, so I'm very tuned in to the new tax law. And as I mentioned during tax season on the broadcast, almost every one of my clients is going to get lower taxes in 2018 versus 2017 if their income stays the same. That is a good thing to me because that means that families will have more money to spend. And if you know my opinion of the overall deficit of our country and the fact that we're in such a huge debt mess, I'm not concerned at all about a $1.3 trillion deficit caused by these tax cuts over the next 10 years, according to the people who calculate these things. And the reason I'm not concerned about that is that this debt is so big already that another $130 billion per year, which is what the math works out on that, that to me is a drop in the bucket. That's not even going to matter. If this tax cut plan, and it is temporary, it goes back to the old one in about eight years, I'm sorry, in about five or six years, if this tax cut stays permanent and every family that I've worked with, almost all of them, end up getting more money available each month to spend, and it only increases the gigantic national debt by that much money over 10 years, I really think it's not a bad thing. And that's, I've said it before, I'm not really complaining about this tax cut. I think when anybody who gets extra money in their pocket is probably going to go out and spend it. In other words, if a family all of a sudden has two or 300 a month more to spend, they might uh, go out and actually uh, buy some new things that might help the local economy. They might go out to eat more, which, of course, supports people who have jobs in the service industry. Things like that. It's all a big, you know, it's all a big circle. One thing does one thing and adds to something else, and pretty soon you've got crowded places downtown Chico and a lot of people being hired. That's the way I interpret the local economy. I'm hoping that things continue to seem to improve. I do feel that the way they measure the unemployment rate is not totally accurate. There's a website called Shadow Stats. And if you look at shadow stats, the guy who does that is a statistician type. And what he does is he takes the current data from the economy and he plugs it into the formulas that were in use 30 or 40 years ago to measure things like unemployment, inflation, and gross domestic product, all the numbers that go into these summaries that you hear about when they say unemployment's down to 3.8%. This man takes the exact same data. And now the other question you have to remember is, is this data even accurate? But since it's the only data we've got, we probably need to assume that the data is accurate. But if you use the same data 
and you plug it into the old style of measuring things like unemployment and inflation, you end up with a figure of something like 22% unemployment right now and inflation of 9 or 10%, as opposed to 3.8% unemployment, which is the publicized number, and inflation of 1% to 2%, which I think is a complete joke. I noticed the other day, speaking of shrink, well, it's not really shrinkflation, but you could interpret it that way. I do stop and get coffee at a drive-up coffee place now and then. I try not to all the time. It's a lot more thrifty to make your coffee at home and do up your own iced coffee in the morning. What I did notice the other day is the same coffee that I ordered a few months ago for around $4 price tag was $5. That translates to a 25% inflation on that item within, say, two or three months. If you look at it over a year, it's probably they probably give a small 10 or 20 cent increase all the time. So the bottom line is we're probably looking at 20 to 30% inflation on a lot of the things you buy, such as groceries, such as rent, such as house prices. When you look at what you really spend, oh, and let's not forget health care and health insurance premiums. That's always one of my favorite topics. If you look at it that way, you're probably looking at, and I'm just going to throw it out there, and you know, if anybody wants to argue with me, that's fine. I'm always happy for a nice, pleasant discussion. I'll bet it's 20 to 30%. Almost everything I've seen lately is higher than it used to be. Now, with the gas price, I remember just maybe six months, maybe a year ago, I, I can't remember exactly, but I do remember seeing gas for 209 at one point per gallon. And now the lowest I've seen is 331 I saw yesterday in Paradise, I believe. That tells me that gas, which is a large cost of every family, is up by probably 45 or 50% in the last year. How they can arrive at 1% to 2% inflation is definitely a magic trick. That's why you should look at the place called Shadow Stats. When you go there, you can look around. You can look up Internet articles about shadow stats. The problem with shadow stats is that if you want to get the information current, you have to actually pay to subscribe. It's actually a business, and the man who runs that, I think his name's John Williams, he actually charges like a monthly fee to get his data all the time. I don't subscribe because it's not that crucial to my business to know what he's talking about. So... It's just a good place to look at. It's called Shadow Stats. I recommend you at least look there. Now, today, I've got a couple of topics I want to cover before I get into a little bit of sharing and reading for the last segment, which will be uh, down the road here a little while later. As usual, I do want to say I appreciate you being able to spend some time. Maybe you're driving. I had a real nice visit the other day from a listener who was driving and he stopped by to say hello and say how much he enjoyed the show and that really that really perked up my day the other day that was really nice so today what I'm going to do is I've thought of a little game and I haven't made any rules and there's no real strict anything on this but it's just something I thought of and I'll explain why I'm making it into a bit of a game instead of just a lecture and the way I've got this figured out for today and I'll give it a try. I've got two different topics. I don't know if I'll even make it to the second one, but we'll see. I'm going to call this little game, You Be the Judge. I'll explain here why I'm going to have this thing set up as You Be the Judge, because I want to present some things to you, and I want you to think about whether you believe one, whether you believe one interpretation of it or another. And that is why I'm going to call it You Be the Judge. So I think we should just kind of dive right into the first topic on You Be the Judge today. Because I want you to think about things the way I, at least I want to introduce you to the way I think about things. First, I'll give you a little background. I've been reading what you would consider alternative news for 
over 30 years and I was even subscribing and reading some pretty wild stories in the 80s, which is actually before the Internet. My history of the Internet, I always think about the fact that it was 1995 when the places that I still look at started up like eBay, uh, Yahoo, those type of big famous names, some of them which are still around like those two. It was about 1995 that those started. And so that's kind of my definition of the beginning of the Internet. I do know it was around a little bit before then. What I find amazing is that these days with the Internet, there is so many places that you can listen to commentary, opinions. Some are facts. Some of them aren't. Some are opinions, and they tell you so. I don't see any harm in listening to opinions that are a little bit off the wall or a little different. It's up to you to decide what you think is right or whether you even need to worry about what's right. When you really think about it, if you hear two opinions about something going on in Washington and you feel something's right on one side and the other side's wrong, is it really necessary to know which one is right or wrong? I'm just thinking about things like, I mean, what kind of stress does that add to your day when you have to analyze if something you just heard on the news from 3,000 miles away is right or not. Most of the time, it just doesn't really matter. So in that respect, I don't think it's that big of a deal to always worry about who's right and who's wrong. It's always good to remember that everybody who's speaking about any topic usually has some sort of motive, and it might be better to think about what the motive of the speaker is than to ask where he got his facts or whether it's true. Once you realize what the motive is, you can pretty much decide whether someone's being genuine or not, or whether there's a potential that they aren't being genuine. And that's where this whole idea that I got of you be the judge comes in. Because you have to think about, number one, do you really care? But number two, you know, what are the criteria for judging? Is it who's saying what and what their motive might be? And then again, you're going to be guessing what their motive is. Maybe you're wrong on their motive. One thing about that, though, is that it's pretty easy that whenever you're listening to big networks or TV, radio, you can probably pretty much assume that the motive of 90% of the people giving you those stories, news, commentary, the motive is profits. These are big companies that aren't there for their health. They aren't there for you really they're there to make profits for the shareholders that's that's sort of the basis of the whole corporate world all of these companies the whole idea is to make profits for the owners of the company and when it comes to large companies like Disney that owns ABC I believe General Electric owns NBC I believe AT&T is buying something like Netflix, something like that. I'm not sure what the big merger is lately. But the bottom line is that these companies may have a motive, and that motive is generally profits. I'll give you a good example. If the largest advertiser in the local paper is a car dealer, and if that car dealer's car is faulty, do you believe the editor of the local newspaper... I'm not naming any names, of course. Do you believe that editor may run a front-page story about the fire danger of a faulty car from the dealer that is the largest advertiser in that local newspaper? That's my take on the analysis I'm talking about about motive. Every time you hear an opinion, you need to realize the motive involved. My motive here, whenever I talk about things trying to make you think my real motive here, number one, I am here as a business person and the show is business buzz and everybody here is pretty much interested in profits, but I'm not directly looking for profits from any listeners here. I am just looking to try to educate people knowing that if and when they do need tax help, they might remember my name and I might be the one that they call. So, If you want to think about motive, uh, generally it's going to be profits, money, 
uh, you know, keeping everybody healthy and safe. And large companies like Disney and General Electric and those people who run the media, their main motive is profits. And the way they get those profits sometimes can be translated into the analysis I just gave you of the local newspaper whose largest advertiser is a car dealer. Well, here's the first break of the day. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn. I'll see you in just a little bit. Stay tuned. Rock House Dining and Espresso, now featuring Jamming for Jesus, a Christian jam night. The first one is Saturday, June 23rd, 5 to 8 p.m. Rock House is located only two miles past the hardware store in Yankee Hill on Highway 70. Originally built in 1937, Rock House has served as a restaurant, tavern, shower house, barber shop, a gas station, and a cafe. Serving yummy and creative vegetarian offerings as well as a fantastic Reuben and French dip sandwich. Yum! Don't forget the awesome iced coffee and fruit smoothies. Rock House is looking forward to hosting more Christian musicians. Enjoy dinner specials every Saturday night at Rock House Dining and Espresso. That's Rock House Dining and Espresso on Highway 70 in Yankee Hill. Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation, where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the iron curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX. Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm trying to have a kind of an interesting day with a couple of topics that I think are very challenging to the to the brain cells. So this is my first segment that I'm calling You Be the Judge. Now, first I'm going to explain why I had to make this first one, You Be the Judge. As a CPA, I am barred from criticizing the IRS, the tax process, other CPAs. It's just kind of a moral standard code thing when you're licensed CPA. You don't uh, downgrade the IRS. You don't do rabble-rousing for tax protesting. That is why I want to present this as a you-be-the-judge because I am not going to take sides on this. I'm just informing you of some facts that are interesting. Obviously, as a CPA, I actually assist people in filing their taxes. My goal is always to have them pay the lowest legal tax liability. That's my job. And there's actually a tax court case. It might even be a Supreme Court case. Don't quote me on which one it is that actually says, yes, it is totally within the law to do whatever you can with using the tax codes to get the lowest legal tax. That's totally okay. So no matter how crafty and how sneaky it sounds, if it follows the tax law, it's totally legal. And to be honest, it should be encouraged. That is what tax professionals are here to help you with, is to get you the lowest legal tax liability. So I'll give you a little background on part one of You Be the Judge. Back in the days before the internet, one of the places that I subscribed to a newsletter that gave me a lot of good information also had an article about a man named Benson. And I ended up buying his book. I didn't pay a lot of money for some big program. His, the bottom line of his program is like a tax protester kind of thing. That's why I'm saying you be the judge. I won't give any opinions on uh, how to go about all this stuff because I wouldn't recommend it to my clients 
and uh, I don't recommend it to anybody. But I think it's very interesting, and I think you'll find it interesting also. You probably have never heard of this man named Bill Benson, but he wrote a book called The Law That Never Was. And to make a long story short, his contention is this. The 16th Amendment opened up the doors to income taxation. The problem is Mr. Benson had, I believe he had some wealthy people backing him on this. Here was Mr. Benson's project. Now, I don't know why he hated the taxes so much. Maybe he, maybe he you know, had a big problem with a tax situation and got upset. Here's what he did. And this is, to me, it's totally cool just to do this on anything. He got a bunch of money together from people who helped him with gifts, I believe. He went to every state legislature in the country, and he copied with certified copies every piece of paper that had to do with the ratification of the 16th Amendment. As a little bit of background and as a law student, I'm not a practicing attorney and I don't play one on television, but I do have a law degree. In order to ratify an amendment to the Constitution, it takes a two-thirds vote of all the state legislatures. At the time of this 16th Amendment, that would have been 36 states because there was, uh, I'm sorry, um, you know, it may be 75%. I'm sorry, I, I just don't have it in front of me right now. So don't quote me on the law stuff. Like I say, it's been a long time since I've studied for the bar. So he went to every state legislature in the country and certified copied everything having to do with the passage of the 16th Amendment. And what he found, according to him, and according to this book called The Law That Never Was, is that it was not properly ratified. So I'm going to read a little bit of this and just to give you a little background on what he did. Uh, The federal government rests its authority to collect income tax on the 16th Amendment, which was allegedly ratified in 1913. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Now, the reason it sounds so technical is because in the Constitution, The power to lay taxes is only granted with certain limitations which have to do with apportionment among the several states and with with regard to census or enumeration. So it's obvious to me that this 16th Amendment was, and the reason I'm pointing this out right now is that in the next little part of our You Be the Judge, I'm going to read an alternative view of this Benson book and I want you to think about it. So... After an extensive year-long nationwide research project, Bill Benson discovered that the 16th Amendment was not ratified by the requisite three-fourths of the state. So that was my 75%. I apologize for the two-thirds mistake I made. Three-fourths of the states, and that nevertheless, Secretary of State Philander Knox had fraudulently declared ratification. It was a shocking revelation. It reached deep to the core of our American system of governance. Now, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution defines the ratification process, requires three-fourths of the states to ratify any amendment proposed by Congress. There were 48 states in the American Union in 1913, meaning that affirmative action of 36 was necessary for ratification. In February 1913, Secretary of State Philander Knox proclaimed that 38 had ratified the amendment. In 1984, Bill Benson began a research project never before performed to investigate the process of ratification of the 16th Amendment. After traveling to the capitals of the New England states and reviewing the journals of the legislative bodies, he saw that many states had not ratified. He continued his research at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. It was here that Bill found his golden key. This damning piece of evidence is a 16-page memorandum from the solicitor of the Department of State, among whose duties is the provision of legal opinions for the Secretary of State. 
Now, remember, the Secretary of State is the one who declared the ratification back then. In this memorandum, the solicitor lists the many errors he found in the ratification process. These four states are among the 38 from which Philander Knox claimed ratification. And uh, here's a quick list. California, the legislature never recorded any vote on any proposal to adopt the amendment proposed by Congress. Kentucky, the Senate voted on the resolution but rejected it by a vote of 9 in favor and 22 opposed. Minnesota, the state sent nothing to the Secretary of State in Washington. Oklahoma, the Senate amended the language of the 16th Amendment to have a precisely opposite meaning. Now, what you, you have to understand what that just said. The guy who sent the, the, the legal notification to the Secretary of State back in 1913 told him that there's at least four states among the 38 that you're listing that did not ratify. Okay, so that's what that means. When his project was finished at the end of 1984, Bill had visited the capital of every state and knew that not a single one had actually and legally ratified the proposal to amend the U.S. Constitution. Thirty-three states engaged in the unauthorized activity of altering the language of an amendment proposed by Congress, a power that states do not possess. Since 36 states were needed for ratification, the failure of 13 to ratify was fatal to the amendment. This occurs within the, within the major first three defects tabulated in defects in ratification of the 16th Amendment. Even if we were to ignore defects of spelling, capitalization, and punctuation, we would still have only two states which successfully ratified. So that's the setup here, and I, what I'm going to show you is an alternative viewpoint that basically calls this a fraud, and what I've just laid out is very, very good evidence that there's a very good possibility that this amendment didn't get ratified. Here comes that break. I'm going to be right back with Business Buzz. Stay tuned. It's going to get fun on You Be the Judge. So stay tuned. Harold Little John will be right back. received news that Chlorina and Sludge have been captured for impersonating Springwater. Let's now go to our field reporter, Alza Wet. Once again, Bob the Drop saves the world from fake water and... Oh, here's Bob now. Bob, do you have anything to say? Well, Chlorina and Sludge from Tapopolis are the worst. Why would you want wannabe water when you can have the best tasting water delivered right to your door? Anyone can get Mount Shasta Springwater if they call us at 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple. Naturally the best. Mount Shasta Springwater. Here's Rick Box, founder of Unconventional Business Network, formerly Integrity Resource Center, with today's Integrity Moment. David Green, founder of Hobby Lobby, desired to maintain his commitment to be a steward of his business rather than an owner. David says the business is like a tree that bears fruit. If you believe you own the tree, you may decide to break off the branches to give to your heirs after your death. Family feuds can then destroy the business. David restructured Hobby Lobby so that the children have no future rights of ownership, but instead they have voting rights to steward God's company. Psalm 24.1 teaches, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Each business owner needs to decide the best succession plan for all involved, but be careful to remember you're a steward, not the owner. To learn more about Unconventional Business Network and doing business God's way, visit unconventionalbusiness.org. That's unconventionalbusiness.org. My name is Lola Silvestri, and I'm going to be 95 this year. I was very independent. I fell, and I had to have meals on wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. 
Glad you have a chance to spend part of your afternoon with me. I know how busy things get. I'm actually able to leave my office and be in the studio an hour every twice a week, and it sure is nice to just be kind of talking to you and able to just concentrate on some things other than uh, what making a dollar. I guess that's why we all work, right? So I just explained to you the pretty good-sounding logic of what Mr. Benson found out. Now, here's a place called fraudsandscams.com, and this one's titled Bill Benson, the Guru That Never Was, which is a takeoff on the law that never was, which is Benson's book. And uh, so what I'm trying to say here is that here's a guy debunking Benson. Now, it turns out that Mr. Benson has, he has the right to print that book, The Law That Never Was, due to freedom of speech. The problem is in 2008, he lost the right to sell his Reliance package, which was $3,500, where you get this entire package of all the copies of all the certified documents which will prove if you, like, don't file your taxes that you're supposed to take that to the IRS and say, here, this is why there's no 16th Amendment. And, of course, everybody who tried to do that probably either uh, went to jail or got in big trouble of some sort. That's why I would never recommend that anybody do that. But what I'm trying to say is here's the other side of this argument. Uh Benson's website has an introductory paragraph that says the authority of the federal government to collect its income tax depends upon the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was allegedly ratified in 1913. After a year of extensive research, Bill Benson discovered that the 16th Amendment was not ratified by the required three-quarters of the states, but nevertheless, Secretary of State Philander Knox fraudulently announced ratification. Now, this guy in Frauds and Scams, he goes on to say that, well, the 16th Amendment didn't really authorize income tax. Well, I beg to differ. It gets a little confusing, but here's the way I look at it. The Cong- Okay, so here is the uh, clause in the Constitution that allows taxation. Um No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. So then the 16th Amendment, now I'm going to say you be the judge. Here's what the 16th Amendment says. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Now, it's too complicated because I'm not an attorney. I, I can't give you all the backup on everything on this. What I'm saying is this, if that isn't a clear and concise income levying amendment, I've never heard one. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. Now, there was a tax law that came in in 1895, but the Supreme Court knocked it down, and it had to do with taxing, instead of property taxes being legal, it was saying you could tax rents from property, and the Supreme Court said no. So, anyway, this guy in Frauds and Scams is basically saying that Bill Benson doesn't even know what the 16th Amendment is about. Then we have a... Supreme Court case called Stanton versus Baltic Mining Company in 1916, where they say the 16th Amendment conferred no new power of taxation, but simply prohibited the previous complete and plenary power of income taxation possessed by Congress from the beginning from being taken out of the category of indirect taxation to which it inherently belongs. So all I'm saying here is uh, I want you to be the judge. Whether or not the 16th Amendment was an income tax levying amendment, why did they feel like they needed to pass it if it wasn't? And an amendment that says 
the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. There's nothing like that in the Constitution. So all I'm saying is you can probably guess whose opinion I believe in. Being a CPA, I can't advocate that and I can't recommend clients follow that. What I'm trying to tell you is here we have another case where there's two diametrically opposed opinions of something. There's probably no right answer. I'm not saying either one is right or wrong, but how could how could it not be important when the process that nobody's arguing, no one's arguing about the process of requiring 75% of the state legislatures to approve an amendment to the Constitution. That's not in argument here. How could these play? Oh, and what I was saying is in 2008, Mr. Benson, he's obviously allowed to print and try to sell his book as much as he wants, as that is free speech, but he's not allowed to sell his uh, reliance package where he makes money off of these paperwork copies from all these state legislatures, and that's where he has a lifetime permanent ban on him selling this as a, a tax reduction plan. So... I'm not saying anybody should do that. Again, I'll reiterate, I'm not recommending that. What I'm saying is, here we go again. There are two diametrically opposed sides to this, one of which is backed up by court cases and judges, and one of which is backed up by an independent guy who did his research and got certified copies from all 50, uh, all 48 state legislatures, because remember, uh, in 1913, there was no Hawaii and no Alaska. What I'm saying is that you have to be the judge, but is anybody going to be right in this in this respect? It's right. It's probably true that these paperworks were copied certifiably, and those legislatures did not ratify. I, I really wanted to bring that up because to me it's been a fascinating topic. I work with income taxes all day. Uh, I try to get everybody their you know lowest legal liability, which is the job of a tax professional, and I've been doing it for quite a long time. But it's just kind of interesting that you can have diametrically opposed opinions. And again, we need to go to motive. It's probably, and I don't really know, but Mr. Benson may have been a guy who uh, was so upset with his income tax numbers that he decided to go all out and try to figure out a way to skirt the whole issue. So there's a motive there. Then there's the motive on the other side. What would be the motive for the government? And when I say government, that obviously includes courts and judges. Is there a motive there to make certain that there is an income tax that's legal? Is there a motive for any tax to be legal when you're the government? That's just what I was saying before. You've got to take into account the idea of motive in any of these kind of discussions. I think I'll, I think I'm going to end up saving my next, I'm going to save my next, uh, you be the judge for some other show because, uh, it's actually got a little too much data to really get into in a 10 or 15 minute span. I have another topic that I'm really interested in on that second one. And, uh, it has to do with, well, it has to do with the our whole system. Remember, I've been talking about the, uh, I've been talking about our debt structured society and how all the money in the world is mainly just debt flying around between countries and between parties, and there isn't anything real going on. That's the case in some of these countries. Are even talking about cashless they're trying to go what's called cashless if we went cashless think about what that would mean every transaction that you do would have to be tracked trackable online through the bank electronic and there's a lot of countries that are trying to be virtually cashless and it's just another sign that the system that we're living with is it's just not working. I've told you before, 
the average life expectancy of a paper money is 27 years. Ours has been going for 47 years. So we're actually on borrowed time already. And it's just not real. It's not real certain how long this system can continue. We've got, like I was saying with shadow stats, if you can tell me that the things you pay for quite often, like filling up your tank, going to the grocery store, or paying rent, or shopping for a new house, if you can see that, and th- those three items, and I'm just guessing, I would say health care, housing, groceries, and gas, I would bet that that makes up 70 to 80% at least of 90% of the families in Chico. So if you can tell me how when those are going up at least 10 or 20% lately, how the inflation rate can be 1% or 2%, it just can't be. 1% or 2% wouldn't even be noticeable. A 2% increase on a $3 box of, say, a dozen eggs, that would be $0.06. Cents. No one would even care if eggs went from $3 to 306 When gas was 220 a year or two ago, 2% increase on that would be, oh, $0.05 cents more, so it would be 225 Would anybody complain if gas went from 220 to 225 Rent that goes up by at least 10% lately, would anybody complain if their rent went from $800 a month to $816 a month? These are the things I'm trying to get you to think about. We're living in a, a world of fake statistics, and things are not as they seem. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. How are you going to get to the Sacramento airport? Use North Valley Shuttle. It's easy online at NorthValleyShuttle.com. Don't be that person who bugs their friends or family to take you. Book online right now at NorthValleyShuttle.com. North Valley Shuttle has added new departure and arrival times each week for your convenience. Serving Chico, Paradise, Oroville, Gridley, Live Oak, and Yuba City, Marysville. North Valley Shuttle gets you there quickly and safely. Leave the car at home and let NorthValleyShuttle.com do the driving. License PSC 20791. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. He really likes to be around people. I get out my mat and I'm doing a downward dog and he's underneath. He's quite the pug about town. He gets invited to a lot of parties. He knows he's a pretty big deal. Look at this little face. I do not love him. Hamilton the pug, Instagram star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States and the Ad Council. To buy your home, you became a house-hunting ace. Learned about loans, scoured neighborhoods, and asked the right questions. Now you're queen of your castle. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll feel empowered to own your retirement like you own your home. Go to aceyourretirement.org. Because when it comes to clearing financial hurdles, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be maybe taking you home from work for the last 15 minutes of the hour. I hope you're having a great day. It's another lovely day in the North Valley. I like to spend my last segment of the show with my favorite book. I hope you've listened along a little bit to some of that in prior shows. I really want to make clear that this book might not hit a nerve or a resonate with you, but if it does, it's worth looking into because, like I say, I've been studying it for oh, over 10 years, I think now, probably 10 or 11 years, and it's just a daily calling. I, I feel 
drawn to it every day. And I, I want to share some of it with you because I think uh, you can learn from this. It's not, it just isn't anything like you've heard before if you've never read it. And I want to reiterate my main lesson for you when you hear anything from this book called A Course in Miracles you have to remember that a miracle is a correction, and the main correction is simply changing your mind from the thinking mind that never stops thinking. You, you know that because that's where you're at 99.9% .9 of the time. And the mind and the part of your mind that steps back and observes the thoughts. And that is, that is the miracle, that is the correction. There's new wave people these days. They talk about present moment, mindfulness. And generally, that is what the Course is talking about. The problem is they don't take it far enough. Like the, They don't take it as far as the Course does, whereas the Course actually teaches you exercises that actually train you to think with that right mind all the time. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about some exercises some other day. It's, uh, like I say, this book is, uh, it's got a lot to it. It's, you'll never actually get through the whole thing. Well, you get through it, but you'll never learn the whole thing because you learn something new every time you read it. Every time I go to these pages that I'm reading you, I learn new things and it, it, uh, it really helps me. And this is something that can help you. If you're stressed out, if you feel like you get overwhelmed with problems, wouldn't it be nice to have an explanation of why you have problems? Wouldn't it be nice to know why every time a problem gets solved, another one comes up? I mean, wh what's the reason why we're constantly having a new problem? Well, once you learn how this course works, and I don't claim to know everything because I've been studying it for 10 years, but I'm not an expert. Once you realize what's going on, if you believe what the course is telling then the problems don't, they don't mean as much. Nothing means as much once you get an idea of what we're really looking at here. So I'm going to read a little more from kind of picking up where I left off last time. This is uh, chapter one, part four. It's called The Escape from Darkness. The escape from darkness involves two stages. First, the recognition that darkness cannot hide. Second, the recognition that there is nothing you want to hide even if you could. This step brings escape from fear. When you have become willing to hide nothing, you will not only be willing to enter into communion, but will also understand peace and joy. Holiness can never be really hidden in darkness, but you can deceive yourself about it. This deception makes you fearful because you realize in your heart it is a deception and you exert enormous efforts to establish its reality. The miracle sets reality where it belongs. Reality belongs only to spirit, and the miracle acknowledges only truth. It, th it thus dispels illusions about yourself and puts you in communion with yourself and God. The miracle joins in the atonement by placing the mind in the service of the Holy Spirit. This establishes the proper function of the mind and corrects its errors, which are merely lacks of love. Your mind can be possessed by illusions, but spirit is eternally free. If a mind perceives without love, it perceives an empty shell and is unaware of the spirit within. But the atonement restores spirit to its proper place. The mind that serves spirit is invulnerable. Darkness is lack of light as sin is lack of love. It has no unique properties of its own. It is an example of the scarcity belief from which only error can proceed. Truth is always abundant. Those who perceive and acknowledge that they have everything have no needs of any kind. The purpose of the atonement is to restore everything to you, or rather, to restore it to your awareness. You were given everything when you were created, just as everyone was. The emptiness engendered by fear must be replaced by forgiveness. This is what the Bible means by there is no death, and why I could demonstrate that death does not exist. I came to fulfill the law by reinterpreting it. The law itself, if properly understood, only offers protection. It is those who have not yet changed their minds who brought the hellfire concept into it. 
I assure you that I will witness for anyone who lets me and to whatever extent he permits it. Your witnessing demonstrates your belief and thus strengthens it. Those who witness for me are expressing through their miracles that they have abandoned the belief in deprivation in favor of the abundance they have learned belongs to them. Now I'm going to skip, uh, I'm going to stop for a second between that and the next part because one thing that a lot of people ask me, I even have a meetup group that is devoted to talking about Course in Miracles. I haven't had a lot of meetings lately, but I used to have a few. One thing that always comes up is uh, a lot of people equate this Course in Miracles thinking with what's called the Law of Attraction, where that says if you just think positive thoughts and think about what you want, it'll come to you. And this really isn't the same as that. What this is talking about is that when he says the correction and the mir- the miracle is the correction, so what he's saying is uh, just doing the correction is toward the atonement. The atonement is when everybody is thinking in the same in the same way, and not in the other way where he was saying where the hellfire idea came from. So the next section is called wholeness and spirit. The miracle is much like the body in that both are learning aids for facilitating a state in which they become unnecessary. When spirit's original state of direct communication is reached, neither the body nor the miracle serves any purpose. While you believe you are in a body, however, you can choose between loveless and miraculous channels of expression. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That is exactly what I was saying about the correction. You have a choice of those two minds that you've got, the thinking mind and the observing mind. So I'm going to read that again. While you believe you are in a body, however, you can choose between loveless and miraculous channels of expression. You can make an empty shell, but you cannot express nothing at all. You can wait, delay, paralyze yourself, or reduce your creativity almost to nothing, but you cannot abolish it. You can destroy your medium of communication, but not your potential. You did not create yourself. The basic decision of the miracle-minded is not to wait on time any longer than is necessary. Time can waste as well as be wasted. The miracle worker, therefore, accepts the time control factor gladly. He recognizes that every collapse of time brings everyone closer to the ultimate release from time in which the Son and the Father are one. Equality does not imply equality now. When everyone recognizes that he has everything, individual contributions to the sonship will no longer be necessary. I want to go back to that for a second here. He recognizes uh, the miracle worker accepts the time control factor gladly. So what this is talking about is that when you do step back and get into your observing mind, which is what the book calls the right mind, and what I, th- that's, the correcting, that's the correcting mind, that's being miracle-mindedness, that is where time goes away. When the atonement has been completed, all talents will be shared by all the sons of God. God is not partial. All his children have his total love, and all his gifts are freely given to everyone alike. Except ye become as little children means that unless you fully recognize your complete dependence on God, you cannot know the real power of the Son in his true relationship with the Father. The specialness of God's Son does not stem from exclusion but from inclusion. All my brothers are special. If they believe they are deprived of anything, their perception becomes distorted. When this occurs, the whole family of God or the Sonship is impaired in its relationships. Ultimately, every member of the family of God must return. The miracle calls him to return because it blesses and honors him, even though he may be absent in spirit. God is not mocked as not a warning, but a reassurance. God would be mocked if any of his creations lacked holiness. The creation is whole, and the mark of wholeness is holiness. Miracles are affirmations of sonship, which is a state of completion and abundance. Whatever is true is eternal and cannot be changed or be changed. I'm I'm sorry, and cannot change or be changed. Spirit is therefore unalterable because it is already perfect 
but the mind can elect what it choose, chooses to serve. The only limit put on its choice is that it cannot serve two masters. If it elects to do so, the mind can become the medium by which spirit creates along the line of its own creation. If it does not freely elect to do so, it retains its creative potential but places itself under tyrannous rather than authoritative control. As a result, it imprisons because such are the dictates of tyrants. To change your mind means to place it at the disposal of true authority. So I'm going to go back to that for a second here. The, on, uh, the mind can elect what it chooses to serve. The only limit put on its choice is that it cannot serve two masters. That is where you can't be in both minds at the same time. You're either in the thinking, chattering mind, or you're in the observing right mind. Okay, I've got time for a couple more little bits of this. Does this part's important? Because remember, the miracle is the correction, and the choice is choosing to observe your thoughts instead of being run by your thoughts. The miracle is a sign that the mind has chosen to be led by me in Christ's service. And now remember, when he says me, this is just the Holy Spirit. This isn't God himself talking. The abundance of Christ is the natural result of choosing to follow him. All shallow roots must be uprooted because they are not deep enough to sustain you. The illusion that shallow roots can be deepened and thus made to hold is one of the distortions on which the reverse of the golden rule rests. As these false underpinnings are given up, the equilibrium is temporar temporarily experienced as unstable. However, nothing is less stable than an upside-down orientation, nor can anything that holds it upside-down be conducive to increased stability. Now, I'm going to... I've got about a minute left here. I'm going to just skip forward to a... Uh, I'm going to skip forward to lesson one in the workbook, and I just want to give you an example of what the workbook's all about with its 365 lessons. Lesson one. Nothing I see in this room or on this street from this window in this place means anything. Now look slowly around you and practice applying this idea. I wouldn't do this if you're driving, by the way, but if you're sitting at home, you can try it. Now look slowly around you and practice applying this idea very specifically to whatever you see. This table does not mean anything. This chair does not mean anything. This hand does not mean anything. This foot does not mean anything. This pen does not mean anything. Then look further away from your immediate area and apply the idea to a wider range. That door does not mean anything. That body does not mean anything. That lamp does not mean anything. That sign does not mean anything. That shadow does not mean anything. Notice that these statements are not arranged in any order and make no allowance for differences in the kinds of things to which they are applied. That is the purpose of the exercise. The statement should be merely applied to merely be applied to anything you see. As you practice the idea for the day, use it totally indiscriminately. Do not attempt to apply it to everything you see, for these exercises should not become ritualistic. Only be sure that nothing you see is specifically excluded. One thing is like another as far as the application of the idea is concerned. So I'm going to translate that a little bit, and I hope you like that. It's lesson one from Course in Miracles, and I'm going to say uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll see you next time. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. FBI Director Christopher Wray has reacted to the Inspector General's watchdog report on the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server. This report did not find any evidence of political bias or improper considerations actually impacting the investigation.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. With SRN News.